Well, hello everybody. I'm Craig, aka Disco, from theoneliner.com, and you, for reasons best known to yourself, have chosen to download this, my commentary for the awesome Arnie movie, Total Recall. If you've got the timing right, the TriStar logo should disappear now, and Karolko should appear now. Um, you'll know you've hit play at the right time. And now with that formality over, let me just say, first of all, thank you very much for downloading this and uh, for giving me uh, the the time of day, basically, why you should want to uh, listen to a Scotsman ranting on about a film which is now some 16 years old. is perhaps beyond me, but I'm hoping you've chosen to download this and listen to it for the same reason uh, that I wanted to record it. And that reason is there's no better film to wax lyrical about than an Arnie film. And if you want to talk about Arnie films, a lot of people are going to tell you that Total Recall is one of his finest. And I would be inclined to agree. I would go so far as to say I even prefer this to Terminator or Terminator 2. Controversial. Um, What do we hope to achieve with this this commentary? Um, I don't honestly know. Hopefully it will uh, bestow upon you some of the enthusiasm I have for the film hopefully it might reignite your own enthusiasm for the film Um, it's certainly a film with uh, an interesting production history some of which hopefully I'll uh, I'll be able to highlight for you Um, there's many stories behind the production of this film some of them interesting, some of them not there uh, is also the matter of bestowing upon you some factual data about the planet of Mars I'm going to attempt to pass this off as being vaguely educational by throwing in some facts there in between the sort of adulation that I normally have for the ultra-violent <laughs> shootouts and, and things like that. Um, I've got various trivia about the film for you, about the uh, the short story which you'll just have seen on screen there based on uh, the short story. We can remember it for you wholesale by... Philip K. Dick, who is one of my absolute favourite authors. I'm not big on reading sci-fi, to be honest with you. Uh, But if I do read sci-fi, it tends to be Phil Dick. Um, He was an absolutely awesome author. And although Total Recall, the film, bears uh, only a passing resemblance to the short story upon which it's based, um, the influence is certainly there, uh, mostly in the, the theme. We'll talk about that some more after. See the film starting now proper with uh, this lovely shot there. Some awesome, awesome uh, model work in this film. And what you're looking at there is obviously a, a plate of the actors superimposed over uh, some of the, the model work in the Martian terrain, which was based on sort of satellite uh, photography and things like that. A lot of work went into this, making sure that it was as accurate as possible. And uh, it's certainly paid off. Oh, a nice cosy moment between Arnie and uh, Rachel or Raquel, however you want to pronounce it, Tecoten. Of course, this transpires in a, a second to be a dream sequence. That's certainly a, a nice way to open the movie anyway. My eyes! Should have gone to Specsavers, mate. 
and uh, here we're introduced to the the film's second female uh, lead, which is uh, of course Sharon Stone. Some two years before she popped up in Verhoeven's next film, uh, Basic Instinct. Verhoeven, of course, being Paul Verhoeven, the director, um, who also legendarily gave us the Titanic Robocop, which I'm pretty sure anyone listening to this commentary is going to have seen. And uh, certainly if you if you don't recognise his style in any other fashion, um, the, <laughs> the ultra-violence of Total Recall should at some point ring some bells. You should make the correlation there. Uh, our Paul likes nothing if uh, if not so much as uh, people being machine-gunned, basically. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Here we go. Arnie. The lovable guy. And to be fair, Sharon Stone was hot. Oh, she still is hot. But by goodness. The cheese this guy comes out with. What a Don Juan. All largely uh, fluff, the first... uh, Well, sorry, I was a bit distracted there. Um, (laughs) Largely, as, as with most Arnie films... There's a there's a bit of plot filler at the start. They basically sort of explain away things like accent and whatnot within the first two minutes, don't they? And then then get on to people being shot, which I think we'll see in about five seconds. Um, well, this nonsense has gone on. I suppose it helps to give you some sort of uh, technical insight into the film and whatnot. Um, being shot on 35 mil with a spherical cinematic spherical cinematographic process. And a negative ratio of 1.37 to 1, with an intended ratio of 1.85 to 1, which is theoretically what you should be viewing it at on your nice shiny widescreen telly. Um, Total Recall first hit the cinemas in the US on the 1st of June 1990, and here in the UK almost two months later on the 27th of July. Um, There's no actually accurate figure for the budget, although it's estimated uh, to have cost $65 million, which is kind of the very top end of the mid-budget scale, I suppose, now, but if you consider this was 16 years ago, um, that makes it a very expensive film. Um, Although I like to think, certainly, that with Total Recall, unlike a lot of other films where the budget is absorbed by all number of factors, all that money is most definitely up on screen. And while a lot of the effects work might have um, become less impressive over time, there's no denying that that for a a movie shot in 1990, Total Recall looks absolutely amazing. And a lot of it still does look really pretty good today. Ronnie Cox there. You may recognise from Robocop as well. <laughs> rather fetching dressing gown sort of thing being worn by Sharon there, which dates, dates the movie slightly. I suppose uh, 1989, when the film was being shot, maybe they thought in future 
that at the time this film was shot, the, the 80s would have come back in fashion, but I'm not entirely sure the black and white zebra print with palm motif things work in there. Not to worry. We'll let them away with that. Um, 65 million budget, which is a bit steep, obviously, for the time. However, with a huge awareness ratings by the time the film opened, uh, Total Recall actually had an opening weekend of just over $25.5 million. That's in the first three days of its opening in the States. Now, that's a fair old whack. Again, when you take into account admission prices and the difference uh, in inflation in the last 16 years, that's a monster weekend. Um, and ultimately, it took a worldwide gross of just north of 260 million, I think it was 261.3 million or something like that, was the eventual gross of the film. Um, cinema run globally, and that's pretty much what you call a good investment. It made about three times as much profit as it actually cost to make. And that's, uh, you don't need to be an accountant to work out that that's a popular movie. The first scene here taking place in the uh, the underground, which will feature quite heavily over the next sort of 10, 20 minutes or whatnot. This The film was shot largely, in fact entirely, in Mexico. All the sound stages were built in Mexico. And what you see here, the subway system, is actually the Mexico City subway system, which remains largely unchanged. None of this was really set dressed, apart from these TV screens and whatnot here in the cabs. And the fact that the, the whole subway station here, which I believe is... Oh, it fails me now. I was going to tell you actually what line it was on there. Um, it was basically painted grey by the production team. And that's the only difference. They actually shot on location in the working uh, Mexico City subway station. And all the architecture that you see, the, the, the sort of the very, very angular, very plain concrete stairwells and it's all, it's all very angular this is all architecture which was installed um, beforehand uh, I think Scott mentioned this in his review uh, of the film which I'm going to assume that you've probably read or come across anyway if you've been to the site and gone so far as to download this um, all this architecture is already in place in Mexico City and it, uh, it's a style known as neo-brutalism new brutalism which is a pretty efficient way of describing it actually and it's uh, <laughs> It's a type of architecture which is fairly specific to uh, to New Mexico. I keep calling it New Mexico. Mexico City, sorry. In Mexico. A little bit of plot exposition there. I think those are words we can all live by. Listeners, I implore you, as beloved readers of our site, don't fuck with your brain. Just <laughs> just say no to drugs. Or memory implants, whichever you have the most ready access to. Again, here you'll see there in the background uh, a nice bit of neo-brutalism. And again, I'm not entirely sure, but I'm assuming given the, the look of the interior of this building there, that was shot in location as well. A couple of interesting differences between this and the uh, the short story on, on which it's based. Um, originally, the character played here by Arnold Schwarzenegger 
Um, his first name is still Douglas, but in the short story, um, it was Quail and not Quaid. Um, and there's been no explanation for this change uh, that I can find on record, but it has been suggested that at the time the movie was released, uh, Dan Quayle was a fairly prominent figure in American politics, and it was decided that to uh, to avoid any sort of potential issues and whatnot, that the name of the character should be changed for whatever reason. I don't imagine anyone would think Dan Quayle um, moron, though he turned out to be... Um, was likely to be uh, a secret agent who travelled to Mars and uh, massacred a lot of people. Um, also, uh, in the movie, Quaid is a construction worker, and if my memory serves me right, in the short story, I think uh, it was actually uh, a white-collar worker. He might have been an insurance salesman or something, or an accountant, perhaps, actually. can't quite remember. Um... I've read uh, I've read most, if not all, of uh, of Dick's short story works, but um, unfortunately, as anyone who knows me will tell you, I have a head like a sieve, and I I can't quite back any of that up with uh, with paperwork. I'm pretty sure he was an accountant. And here, of course, we're having explained the uh, after Doug has seen the advert on the subway, it's been explained by this point that. Um, he has a thing for Mars, and he would love to visit Mars, but his wife won't have it. And so the other option is to visit this company called Recall, who offer you implants, memory implants, which, when you awake from the procedure, uh, leave you with completely convincing memories of um, vacation of your choice. And he will also be offered and accept for an additional price... Um, extra memory implants which place him in this dream vacation which he won't actually have experienced but he will have recollections of um, he will appear as a secret agent and this of course um, this brings up the theme uh, Dick's perennial theme in all, almost all of his short story work um, if not the central theme then certainly hovering around is this idea of um, of what is real and what is not if the mind is basically a processor which takes input from your, your eyes, your ears, and your memory, however, whatever form memory takes, um, if those senses can be falsified, then at what point does reality stop and fantasy begin? How can we ever know that what we're experiencing is actually reality? Um, Obviously, that's the central theme for The Matrix, which everybody likes to think was a hugely original piece of sci-fi work. But anyone who's not just a sort of casual cinema goer and, and has has seen plenty of sci-fi uh, cinema or reads sci-fi literature will know is a theme that Dick wrote about many, many times way back in the, the 60s and 70s. Um, there's a good chance you'll also have seen Blade Runner which was based on another of uh, Dick's stories, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And that deals with, obviously, if you know the plot, the, the same kind of theme. And here he is being offered the implant, which will make him believe that he was a secret agent during this vacation. Now we'll see this device another couple of times in the movie, which Quaid is resting in 
Looks like a slightly off-kilter cat scanner. Some, <laughs> some massively convincing techno jargon there. Now a lot of these images uh, that you see there, the latter images on the screen, the architectural images and whatnot, are actually uh, pre-production uh, design sketches which were presented uh, to Paul Verhoeven by the art department, um, suggesting set design and uh, and such like there. And although not used in the final movie, they appear on the screen there. And if you're paying attention to what's shown in them, uh, provide a, a forebear for some of the events and locations uh, which you'll see later on in the film. Menu select level four women. This is perhaps uh, probably the first time that the 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 issue of feminism and uh, male suppression of feminism pops up somewhere in this film. There was a huge furore um, surrounding this film. Now it came out around my twelfth birthday, and I can still remember at the time in the newspaper articles. Um, and also uh, there was a large feature on it in the news, not only about the level of violence in the movie, which, to be fair, is completely unmatched, and indeed the version that we're watching now, even the, the version uh, from the States, uh, is not an uncut version. Uncut version of Total Recall has never been released. It was originally granted an X certificate, and the, the, the version you're watching now is the version which was presented to the MPAA by Verhoeven after cuts were made to several scenes uh, just to get an R rating. Um, but in addition to the issue of violence, um, there was a huge furore uh, about the the whole idea that the film was somehow incredibly sexist and that it cast women in minor roles who were there purely for uh, male gratification. And they're you can see the first sort of seed of, of a reason why they may have an argument there and that the film would seem to suggest initially that, you know, uh, a woman is something to be selected according to your own choices and uh, in compliance with your with your fantasies. But, of course, anyone who's actually sat down and watched the movie will know that, in reality, there are two incredibly strong female leads, uh, Sharon Stone and Rachel, or Raquel Tecotin, uh, both of whom prove more than a capable match for any <laughs> any male in the film, and uh, who manage to kick just about as much arse as Arnie does. Um, and they're certainly not put upon, they're certainly not marginalised. Um, they are far better female characters than you would normally find in a movie of this ilk. So while I can understand the argument uh, surrounding the, the violence in the film, because it does, even at the, the existing cut here, remain a ferociously brutal piece of film action cinema even more so than, than Commando arguably um, I really don't get the whole uh, the whole feminist uprising surrounding this I can't agree with it at all can't agree with it at all uh, ladies feel free to <laughs> email me in disagreement um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that most most women out there with, with an ounce of common sense, and I do believe most women do have an ounce of common sense, certainly more so than us guys. Um, 
I think most women would probably agree that the film doesn't denigrate or, or marginalise uh, females at all. In fact, they're some of the strongest characters, and we'll see more of that later on. <laughs> awesome slap. Shut up. Good medical practice there. Fallon goes tits up, dump him in a cab. And what a cab. The Johnny Cab. Now, these automated drivers of Johnny Cab, if the face looks familiar to you, that should be because the voice uh, was provided by and the face modelled on the actor Robert Picardo, who not a name familiar to the average cinema gore and when I read this I couldn't immediately put a face to the name but uh, Robert Picardo is of course a member of the Star Trek Voyager team and I believe he, he might have appeared in, in Deep Space Nine I'm not a huge Star Trek fan so I'm not entirely sure but I certainly remember he appeared as the uh, ship's holographic doctor in Star Trek Voyager so there you go, the face and voice of Johnny Cab. More of which later. Back to the Mexico City subway station. Where uh, Harry is about to <laughs> is about to put his foot down on the uh, the intrigue pedal here. What's going on? Here we go, the first inkling that things aren't entirely well, not the first inkling, because he just freaked out at recall. But certainly, the first, the first incidents of any of the characters here, given a sense that all might not be what it seems, and that they themselves might not be truly who uh, Quaid has up until this point supposed them to be. And the first, uh, the first fairly brutal deaths coming up here. So, <laughs> worth pointing out here that the impacts uh, here and the, certainly that in particular the neck snapping sounds have been have been done with some gusto by this <laughs> by the sound design team. I don't think uh, I don't think Total Recall won any awards for sound editing unless I'm I'm wrong. I haven't actually checked that out. I mean I know it did it did uh, pick up Academy Awards for uh, effects work, but some of the some of the sound work is uh, is phenomenal. Of course, here Quaid comes back, back home in a bit of a panic. And of course the question and the most plausible reason given to him here initially at the start is uh, 
that uh, obviously something went wrong at recall and uh, all this is sort of par- paranoid delusion. And one of the uh, the great things about the film is that <laughs> an hour an hour and uh, a half plus from now, you're still not actually sure whether that's the case. It's a massively ambiguous film, and that's if you if you lay aside the violence and you know the other um, superficial factors of the film, the uh, you know the effects work, the the general level of of people getting fucked up in a <laughs> increasingly violent ways, um, increasingly um, visceral fashion. Um, it is underneath an action movie which has some level of depth thematically, but it also, despite all this brutality and, and the, uh, the stuff that appeals to our, our basis nature, it is actually an action film which credits the... Uh, the audience with some intelligence, and that's that's a rare thing. In 16 years since this film was made, I can't think of a mainstream adult action film like this that that works on so many different levels. The exception, maybe, of uh, of Terminator 2. I might think of one or two others, obviously, given time, but. Um, Again, feel free to email me if I'm if I'm incorrect, but big stellar budget action films like this, and I'm talking in the league of Total Recall, Terminator 2, and whatnot. I don't think you'll find another one that's that appeals to to so many people on so many different levels. Uh, to be honest with you, now, a demonstration here of Sharon Stone certainly not being some uh, some put upon uh, pansy of a woman. Because to be fair, she's given Big Arnie a bit of a pasting. She's clearly a capable woman with a well-defined mission. But physically, not much of a match for Arnold, as, as I don't think many of us are. some important exposition there but of course is this the beginning of the unveiling of the truth that is Quaid really was a secret agent before and has tripped to recall to undertake an implant that would actually suggest that unwittingly to him has uh, has unearthed these these hidden truths and it's actually his life up until now which, which is a, a false memory or is this the beginning of the false memory that he went to recall and uh, and paid for? Clever girl.
Well, equal opportunities and all. Back to the subway again here, there you go. <laughs> it might be an idea to uh, conceal the gun, Arnie, yeah. And uh, our introduction to Richter, good old uh, gravel voice himself, Michael Ironside, who would work again with uh, Verhoeven in uh, Starship Troopers. He is the right-hand man of uh, the insidious mastermind behind all this, who we'll, we'll meet later on, uh, good old Ronnie Cox, who we saw in the, the news clip earlier. As Velos Cohagen. And as things progress, we'll soon find out that Richter is uh, is a nasty man indeed, and there's not much he'll stop at. You can tell this because A, he is Michael Ironside, and because B, he's wearing a black shirt underneath a dark suit. This clearly makes him evil. And we find out there that uh, Sharon Stone's his girl. <laughs> Introducing a shallow, if effective, uh, plot device there of uh, Richter being understandably miffed that his missus has been forcibly shacked up with a 18-stone muscle-bound Austrian... Uh, bundle of muscle for the past however long and the scene there with the x-ray screen is one of the first instances of CG uh, being used in a film entirely CG well the skeleton bit was there not all that breaking glass that's a bit too convincing to be CG at that point in time um, there are a couple of other noticeable uses of CG in the film, which I'll point out when we come across them. But that there, uh, the first sort of major all CG moment on uh, mainstream film. And if you think shouldering that guy there was uh, disregarding uh, a member of the public. Just watch this. This is the the first of the scenes which was cut for uh, the MPA certificate. This poor fellow coming up here. Here we go. Now that scene uh, has been cut very much like the Ed 209 gunning down Mr. Kinney at the start of uh, Robocop was originally cut. The poor fellow, uh, the poor fellow being used as a human shield uh, went on for, for some time longer, I'm led to believe. But of course we've never seen that scene uncut. And we get an idea of how nasty a man Richter is there that he's, he, you know, stomping on the chest of uh, one of his, his dead team members <laughs> rather than walk around them oh he's not happy is he 
advice that Arnie's maybe wishing he uh, he had taken. <laughs> I'm assuming you've seen the film before before listening to this, but that, you'll you'll know that's not um, Richter's not a guy you want to wind up. It's Michael Ironside for Pete's sake. The man gargles razor blades. There you go. So some idea being given there that uh, Quaid actually may already have been to Mars. Or again, is this all just part of his implanted memory? I'm sure that's not a legal plate. Now, after uh, Johnny Cab, the annoyingly polite robot, it's maybe a terse reference, but we're about to have our uh, our second reference to uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy here, which is the idea of the towel being wrapped around the head, which it's explained uh, muffles the signal which uh, Arnie has been tracked by. He's had a, a device implanted in his head. <laughs> of course in uh <laughs> In today's uh, today's society, that the the wrapping of the towel around the head would have all manner of uh, connotations, wouldn't it? You probably wouldn't do that for fear of uh, offending certain certain cultures. They'd find some other way of muffling the signal, other than making uh, Arnie look like uh, Sinbad. I need it. Rumbled. 
back into the Johnny Cup or a Johnny Cup. <laughs> the future's no place to try and make a getaway in a cab. Good job, there is uh, of course a joystick in the automated cab. I've always felt this was an odd moment. There's really no need for this to blow up. Maybe in test screenings, audiences found uh, Johnny Cab a pain in the ass. Otherwise, it really just feels like something blowing up for the sake of it, which, in a film where a lot of shit blows up, is actually probably the only time that, that you could say that. Some well-trained rats there. Worth, uh, worth noting at this point that um, Ronald uh, Shusett, the author of the, the screenplay uh, for Total Recall, bought the, the rights to the short story back in 1970, I think it might have been 1974, for, uh, in the region of, I think, about $1,000. And the film had a fairly protracted uh, production history. Um, it was originally well, it was bandied about for years, basically ever since the the rights were purchased and and Shusett made his uh, his first uh, attempt at the screenplay. It was bandied about. There were something like forty script rewrites, uh, so the legend has it, and it eventually ended up in the hands of Dino De Laurentiis, who took so long about uh, took so long arguing over prospective endings and things like that. But by the time that he was happy with the the uh, the script uh, his company was was facing bankruptcy and uh, Arnie who had originally been slated to work with Verhoeven and Robocop uh, but proved physically pretty much too large to uh, to occupy the the suit in a believable way um, Arnie convinced Carolco to to buy the script which was uh, which was back in the open market. And uh, and have him in the lead role, and the, the rest is history. But originally, um, names linked with Quaid were uh, the character of Quaid were Jeff Bridges, Patrick Swayze, and Richard Dreyfus. Now, assuming that the screenplay before was quite action based, 
and and I would imagine not necessarily as brutal because let's face it, Verhoeven always brings a <laughs> Verhoeven always brings his own particular blend of extreme to the the table in these things. But assuming that the film was so heavily action based anyway, to begin with, it's, I can picture Patrick Swayze, sort of post Roadhouse, kicking this much ass. But Jeff Bridges and particularly Richard Dreyfus. Hmm. A bit more questionable. Yeah, the first, uh, the first major bit of uh, work here by by Rob Bottin. You see the the false Arnie head. Rob Bottin, of course, having worked with Verhoeven before on RoboCop and the makeup effects. That's the false Arnie head there. For the time, that's not bad animatronics, I suppose. I've always wondered why that bug, which would clearly sort of fit up his nostril at a, sh- at a push on its own, was uh, encapsulated in such a large spherical container, making it completely impractical, presumably, to insert, and as we see there, uh, retrieve. Answers on a postcard. I think Verhoeven and, and Botin probably just like to make any procedure, however mundane, as as, <laughs> as apparently painful as possible. Why have someone remove something from their their nose simply if you can actually have them endure some agony whilst doing it, I suppose. The more visceral, the better. Again, well-trained rats, eh? I hope they got some good pay out of this. If you discount the dream sequence at the start here, our first actual trip to Mars. There we go. Some sort of transport craft. Which, um, if memory serves me, was uh, was model work. With some, some opt- that's certainly a, a model shot. Uh, with some optical work involved. Using three different scales of uh, miniature. The infamous fat lady here. Uh, The actress who plays uh, the fat lady here, Priscilla Allen, if you watch carefully, the passport she she gives to the passport controller here is actually her own. Not that you can actually tell that just by watching there, but that's a fact. 
You can take my word for it. Watto. First mention of uh, the mutant mastermind behind the Martian resistance there. <laughs> Any fruit or veg? Little pastiche there of US immigration controls. What gives? Something's clearly not right. This is a second bit of CG work here. Still not a bad effect. the dreaded depressurization which we witnessed a little bit of at the start of the film with the dream sequence with the eyeballs popping out of heads and such like maybe not entirely realistic but although we don't see the same happen to anyone here we know that's the, the fate that awaits them this poor guard here as he tumbles out the window any second now bye bye Poor sods. I wouldn't want to be the one to have to tell their families. Interestingly, the, the role of uh, Richter was originally offered to Kurtwood Smith, who played, of course, Clarence Boddicker in Robocop, but he felt that the... Uh, the role was far too similar to to Boddicker and he didn't want to sort of revisit that kind of character at that point in time. A lot of similarities between Kurtwood and uh, good old what's-his-face. <laughs> I've forgotten his <laughs> Michael Ironside. I've forgotten his name already. I apologise if you're listening to this, Michael. Good example here of uh, optical technique being mixed with the uh, the excellent model work. The optical element there and the 
the glass obviously and the, the train which itself is a model with a computer controlled camera movement here coming up and over a, a foreground level of uh, model work again revealing the model layers behind three different scales of models giving the impression of uh, a fairly large wide angle landscape and now in person we meet Cohagen, who is not a happy man. <laughs> we get an idea here that as much of a, a sociopath as Richter may be, um, even <laughs> even he doesn't enjoy being shouted at by uh, by Velos Cohagen. So not necessarily the kind of man that you want running, well, a corner shop, I suppose. Never mind a bloody uh, planet. <laughs> that wiped the smile off his face. Now the short story, we can remember it for you wholesale, which first appeared in a magazine of fantasy and science fiction in April uh, 1966, I think. Um, was also the also the inspiration behind uh, the more recent movie, which a lot of you may be familiar with, uh, which was uh, Michael Gondry's The Eternal Sunshine of Sorry, I've had a drink. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, a film which I can't really comment on largely because uh, when we at the One Liner went to view it for review purposes, I had come off the back of a particularly long shift at work and I fell asleep halfway through. Uh, but I'm reassured that had I stayed awake, I probably would have enjoyed it. Um, but it shares uh, it shares a fairly strong central theme of the whole memory erasure. There we go, Brubaker there, just uh, on an aside, Brubaker, the name, I believe, of the mission commander in Capricorn 1, which is a film about a falsified trip by NASA astronauts to Mars. Um, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, uh, sharing the, the theme of the, the whole memory erasure whatnot with uh, Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet playing characters who, unbeknownst to them at the time, were previously lovers, but after they split up, both had their memories erased so that they could forget the other person. Decidedly fewer people being massacred in uh, 
in that movie. But that doesn't necessarily make it any less worthy. Here's Benny. Benny the cab driver who turns into quite an important character later on. Sets out as though he may be the sort of uh, obligatory ethnic marginal and sort of comedy sidekick character with his witticisms left, right and centre. But he uh, is a man of more depth than that. fact fans may be interested in at this point well well shit blows up there's not a lot to comment on mars itself the fourth planet from the sun if you were paying attention at primary school and the seventh largest in the solar system although it's uh, it's much smaller than earth with a, a diameter of 6794 kilometers or thereabouts uh, is the planet in the solar system uh, most similar most comparable to earth in terms of uh, of climate um, which is not to say that it's uh, by any means habitable, but it's closest enough. And that uh, is one of the reasons why it's such a popular um, planet with writers of science fiction. That and the whole uh, prospect that there may once have been life on Mars um, has made it a bit of a, bit of a perennial favourite with the old uh, sci-fi brigade. Here we're seeing some of the the mutants that we've heard so much about. Who, if you like, are the uh, the lower classes of the uh, the Mars community. The have-nots. Because uh, poor radiation shielding and poor quality air and whatnot have uh, rendered their genetics a bit fucked up. But there you go, that's what happens when big commerce starts to take an interest in ore mining on planets other than our own. This is where Arnie is about to meet Melina, uh, Rachel Tecoten. Who we saw briefly earlier as uh, the embodiment of Arnie's choice of his ideal woman when he was selecting his memories uh, back at Recall. That's one of the scenes that caused uh, some concern and for the censors in some countries there, the shot of uh, the hooker with three breasts. Perish the thought. There we are. Rachel there. Bit heavy in the green makeup, I always thought, but she's still a looker. Come on. Even with that, uh, that frizzy late 80s perm there. Could do with a bit of frizzies on that.
Hauser were now, uh, of course, aware of as being potentially the real name of Arnie's character before he was uh, sent undercover or whatever the hell the plot turns out to actually be. And one of the reasons the film caused so much outrage with the, the, the feminist PC brigade was uh, the whole hooker element here. Now, why... A hooker in an ultraviolent Arnie sci-fi film is a character to be abused, or rather is perceived as being a character there purely to be abused, is any different from a hooker in any other film is uh, is beyond me. But again, as we soon learn, and especially towards the end of the film, these, these women... Uh, are some of the uh, the most capable members, shall we say, of the uh, the mutant resistance movement? Oh, these bloody memory implants, eh? Causing a bit of angst in this relationship. Okay, so now we learn that the character of Hauser, who Arnie's character may or may not have been before, uh, mm, is supposed to have been a member of Cohagen's uh, security forces who was sent to work undercover in the <laughs> in the mutant resistance and who is or was working for the mutant resistance and may now possibly or possibly not still be working for Cohagen. Is that clear? Another interesting Mars facts that although it's significantly smaller than Earth, the surface area of Mars is roughly the same as the land surface area of Earth. Of course, the debate rages on as to whether or not there is actually water on Mars, uh, possibly frozen below the sur surface, other than obviously the, the polar ice cap on Mars. But being as there is actually no body 
of water on the Martian surface. The entire surface area of Mars is about the same as the land surface area of Earth. This character, apparently a doctor implanted in Quaid's memory to try and snap him out of his uh, what may or may not be. <laughs> it can become quite tiring. It keeps saying may or may not, but the film is so one of the one of the trump cards of the film is that it's so ambiguous, and yet unlike uh, other films which attempt such things, which that can't keep up with their own continuity. The design of Total Recall is such that you can quite legitimately argue one way or t'other that this is either all reality or all uh, falsified memory. But in doing so, you can't <laughs> you can't possibly rule out the uh, the idea that you, you may be wrong and that it may actually be the other. It, it works completely. Uh, both sides of the coin are, are just as polished, if you will. It works both ways. Very clever. For something for something which is so immediately... Uh, superficial... It actually, by this point now, is revealing itself to actually be a very, very complex, uh, complex uh, film in terms of uh, in terms of plot. Of course, it helps that uh, several hundred people get the shit shot out of them in bloody fashion. Shaza again. I was saying this doctor here and uh, and Sharon apparently in this phase uh, both claim to not actually exist but to have been sent into uh, to Doug's implanted in Doug's memory by recall in an attempt to draw him out before he becomes psychotic, uh, which will happen at the point where he starts to uh, apparently where he starts to. Uh, believe entirely in this uh, this apparently fabricated episode which they're trying to convince him he's, he's uh, undergoing Very clever.
worth remembering that statement there when it comes to the end of the film. We'll come back to that. The whole lobotomised thing. Give away. <laughs> Regardless of uh, how meaningful the uh, the exposition becomes, you're never more than what two minutes away from a fight in this film. Now, of course, that would seem to suggest that the whole thing with the doctor was a setup. Her statement that that's for making me come to Mars. But of course, at, at any time that argument can be overridden by the fact that this may all just be a memory implant because that excuse works as well. There's nothing to disprove the fact that this could all just be implanted memory. And in fact, the statement the doctor made about dreaming about alien civilizations and whatnot. And uh, and the potentiality of uh, of becoming one of uh, Cohagen's bosom buddies is actually what what transpires in the remainder of the film now. There we go. Another example of a woman not exactly being put upon. In fact, uh, an example of a woman doing most of the putting upon. And I will concede at this point that uh, us blokes generally do like to see two good-looking women squaring off against each other. You won't hear any complaints on that uh, that matter. Consider that a divorce. Now that line of dialogue was supposed to uh, was supposed to happen before he shot Sharon Stone's character. Um, originally in the script, Quaid's character said, "Consider this a divorce," and then shot her. But the whole sort of uh, pre pre execution uh, 
cheesy one-liner thing was uh, was deemed a bit too much in that circumstance, and it seemed a bit too cold. So, in a film where people have their arms ripped off, uh, metal rods shoved through their head, shot several hundred times as they're used as a human shield, it's nice to know that Paul Verhoeven does at least have the uh, have the sense to know when to when to tone it down a bit. Oh. oh dear. And of course he can't shoot because uh, he risks fracturing the dome. Benny coming back into play here. Paul <laughs> Verhoeven does like his ludicrously big guns. In fact, he's quite clearly... Uh, Said he makes no apology about. Coming up here, the infamous massacre scene, which uh, is another scene which has been cut 
um, which we've never seen the uncut version of, never been released. This knifing here, this is the bit that's been cut. Now you notice the knife went in there relatively low, and in that, that uh, there was a cutaway. And when it comes back, the knife is uh, considerably further up the torso. That's because originally the character was, uh, was uh, gutted by the midget. The knife went in low and was dragged up high, and that was... Uh, was deemed too uh, too excessive by the uh, the MPAA. So that's another scene that was lost, and uh, subsequently, although uh, the film wasn't cut further for uh, for cinema release in, in most other territories, that's because it was the cut American version which was submitted elsewhere. Um, because generally, it's conceded that if it can't get past uncut in the states, there are very few occasions where it will get past uncut elsewhere by other censorship boards. Some of the set design really is pretty awesome. And again, you can see where the money's gone. It's... it's um, I suppose because a lot of the effects work is mechanical, because we're essentially the film is, is uh, was made at the time when when digital effects were still very much in their infancy. Because so much of the stuff is done mechanically, is done physically. It's easier to see where the money's been spent. It's all very well having subtle effects work that now so much effects work you you don't even realize is there because it's done so so competently digitally so many so many small things are done now that they're just so much quicker and more easy to do digitally than they are they are physically that w when you look at a film like this which is primarily uh physical effects work although it's although it ages and although as as competently as it's been done here as well as it's been done it, it has aged I mean, it is, it is fairly easy to spot in in most cases. It also highlights the fact that it is an effect. You actually notice it's there to begin with, and, and that obviously makes it far easier to, easier to appreciate where the money has gone than in a film where most of the effects work is, is so transparent that you think, you know, well, hell, where did they, where did they spend $70 million? And now we meet the Martian Resistance. And we discover that Benny's a mutant. Which, if you'd seen the trailer, you would know anyway. Uh, 
course, Cohagen now. We know Cohagen's a nasty, nasty man because he's uh, he's decided that if the resistance won't give up uh, Quaid and Quato, well, we'll just cut off the rear. Now we finally get to meet Quato. Who dance music fans will uh, will know provided the "Open Your Mind" sample for uh, the Josh Wink track "Higher State of Consciousness." There's a there's a niche factoid for you. Here we finally get to to meet Quato, who's not the result of a, a quick five knuckle shuffle, as you might think. There, now legend has it that more than one person who visited the set. Uh, was so convinced by the Quato animatronic here that they asked if they'd actually found an actor who <laughs> who was harbouring a half-developed Siamese twin. Now, I don't believe that for a second, but it's certainly an interesting story. That's a pretty cool animatronic, though, you've got to admit, even by today's standards, he's a grotesque little bugger. And what we see here, of course, is a, a fly-through. Various levels of uh, model work and, and mat work and things like that, all sort of very cleverly edited together. Of course, now this would all be done CG. Whoosh. Transition there, if you watched closely enough. And here. The structures which you see coming from the ceiling there, of course, it transpires are uh, part of the reactor. The control rods which uh, melt the hidden ice caps and, and release the oxygen into the atmosphere. And the design for those actually came from uh, 
sort of early 20th, late 19th century uh, architecture, the likes of the the Chrysler Building and the Empire State Building, which uh, the set designers took as their inspiration and uh, turned through 90 degrees, uh, 180 degrees rather, so that they came down from the ceiling rather than up from the ground. Now this is where the action really starts. Most of what happened uh, before is just a precursor to this almighty uh, string of set pieces and shootouts. Although ironically, I don't think there was anything really in in the the forthcoming action. Well, apart from apart from Benny. There we see Benny. Uh, apart from when he meets his demise, that was again that was a, an area that was cut. But this, what's coming up, is arguably the most uh, violent section of the film. Uh, but from which nothing was actually cut. Quaid inadvertently having led the Coagan uh, security forces to the the resistance hideout. Bit of a schoolboy error. But shit happens. Oh, people taking it always. And of course, Benny turns out to be a traitor. You know, I'm telling you, this is the big action sequence setting off, but it's not. I'm telling you lies. Benny, of course, uh, a mutant, but also a traitor. Good shot. Richter really is a nasty piece of work. But as you probably already know, yeah, he doesn't get off entirely scot-free. It never ceases to amaze me between between Total Recall and Robocop. <laughs> Ronnie Cox is such a convincing bastard. He really is. <laughs> the two characters he portrays in these films, he's, he really is a shit of a man. The lowest of the low, and yet 
on the occasions where I've I've seen uh, Ronnie Cox interviewed and whatnot, he really does come across as the most sincere, most likable guy on the planet. Great sense of humour, and yet he has no problem whatsoever portraying these absolute fucking monstrous uh, characters. It's really tantamount to sort of a an underrated uh, underrated player he really is. He brings so much to any film that he's in, especially when he's playing a bad guy. Michael Ironside too. I mean, really, what you're looking at is two of the two of the nastiest characters ever committed to film being played, being played in the most convincing manner by two guys who, on any given day of the week or two, the nicest blokes you could probably hope to meet. Or so, not that I've met them, of course, but you know, if you ever see either Michael Ironside or Ronnie Cox interviewed, uh, and you only know them from from Total Recall or, or RoboCop, then. You're probably likely to be surprised to find out that they come across as such likable blokes. Here's what Quaid refers to as the the best mind fuck yet. A moment that Dick would uh, would no doubt be proud of. Of course, I mean, for for the most part, the movie, uh, the basic plot's quite similar to the book, but most of what's in the movie has bears no resemblance to the uh, the short story at all. Um, in the in the short story, if my memory serves me correctly, um, rather than sort of taking on the the security forces and whatnot, um, the character Quaid's character, well, Quail, not Quaid, uh, Quail. Uh, strikes uh, a deal, I think, with the uh, with the government, um, and he agrees that rather than go through all this furore, he'd rather he'd rather go back to recall and have these Mars memories that he's 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 had erased, uh, or rather, which have been unearthed. Um, he agrees uh, with a deal with the government to uh, rather rather than be killed, he agrees to go and have these memories suppressed again. And um, as an incentive, uh, he's told, you know, while you're at it, why not have uh, why not have other memories uh, implanted as a as a bonus? I suppose take the opportunity to uh, to uh, to have have more false memories implanted on top to to really help you forget. Sort of very macho fantasy kind of, of memories and as the uh, as the procedure takes place um, yet another set of, of false memories is, uh, or older suppressed memories is, uh, is unearthed which um, which reflect the new uh, macho fantasy memories that he's, he's going to have implanted again to, to suppress the uh, the unearthing of the original memories that's probably that's probably not entirely accurate as I remember it, but it should give you some indication as to just how much of uh, 
what Quaid here in the film would refer to a, a mindfuck as um, Philip K. Dick likes to likes to pull on his readers. The one thing I always like about uh, about Dick's work was that um, he would in, he would invest it initially. Any short story, any Philip K. Dick short story you read, typically he he would invest with some level of of confusion and uncertainty to begin with, and uh, as the end of the story approaches what looks like a, a conventional resolution, and the the reader uh, is lulled into a false sense of security, there's a final. <laughs> There's a final and often cataclysmic twist of the key, uh, which turn of the key, which which turns out to totally undermine everything that you've you've come to uh, expect, and all the sort of conclusions you think you've cleverly made yourself by reading the book, um, reading the rest of the story. Sorry, just as you just as you come to think, haha, yeah, I get it. Um, typically, something like that would happen, and. Uh, Completely change, completely change the perception you've spent so long building. Now, some of this scene was shortened here as well for the for the cut we see in the film. The deaths of these guys. Now, this is my favourite one coming up here in a second. This poor guy here. No, no, this guy. Sorry. Ouch. That's a, that's my favourite death in an army film. To to shove a to shove a metal rod through someone's head that's uh, that's very Verhoeven. Now you see there the number of bodies lying there does not necessarily correlate with the uh, the number of fatalities incurred by Arnie, and that's because a lot of the guys who he previously stunned and whatnot, I'm led to believe, um, are dispatched in in brutal fashion, and uh, that's that's been cut. Now this is one part I don't fully understand, and uh, and maybe one of you can email me and let me know. Um, but why go to the bother of reverting his memories if they now decide just to kill him anyway? Is that because they know the alarm's gone off, and at this point are they aware of the fact that he's escaped? Whatever it is, uh, you know, Cohagen's angry enough about it to. Take it out on his goldfish, which seems a bit unfair. Ironically, the last two, uh, the last two goldfish I owned, uh, one of them, one of them, a calico fantail for the the fish fans out there amongst you. I uh, I named Cohagen in honour of Ronnie Cox, and the other, I named Bennett in honour of uh, the character from Commando. Which coincidentally is at this point the only other commentary available on the website. How's that, eh? Spooky. I would like to point out that is coincidence, and that the naming of my fish in no way had any bearing on the the film that I chose to uh, to commentate on. Now this set work, as monotonous as it appears, if you think about actually the time and effort expended in hewing out these uh, these caverns and, and these structures from which I would assume would be styrofoam and then the, 
the decoration thereof to make them appear as rock. As bland a set as this may appear, in terms of uh, in terms of the work involved in producing it, again, the money's up there. Continuity error, all the oil on his face there, and any second now it will disappear again. There you go. Coming up is Benny's death, which again has been edited. It's been optically reframed so that we can't see the drill bit exiting Benny's stomach here. And originally we would see the drill uh, in Benny's stomach churning him up a bit there, but it's been it's been reframed optically, which is to say that the actual the original image was cropped to remove that uh, that bottom portion the bottom left portion which uh, in which you would you would see the drill but being forcibly inserted in Benny's stomach in a most ungentlemanly fashion there we go again those those skyscraper inspired uh, reactor rods there suspended from the ceiling There you go. Politics of the film summed summed up. Again, this had very little to do with the actual uh, the short story, but it certainly works well in the context of an action movie. Big bit of plate work there, big matte painting. Obvious now again, nowadays that would more likely be done CG. But still a nice job. Time for Quaid to bust out his, uh, his little toy. It's a little holographic quaid generator. Very handy. (laughs) 
Now, pernickety people point out here that essentially these guys are all standing round in a circle shooting at someone in the middle who's not actually there, and yet somehow they don't shoot each other. I like to think that's just been a bit pernickety. Oh, he's a clever devil. My favourite line coming up in a second. A second or two. Here we go. <laughs> Arguably the best line in the movie. perhaps uh, the movie's most infamous scene coming up and again one which was trimmed slightly although it's hard to imagine how it could have been much longer uh, this, the scene with uh, Richter uh, famously being uh, disarmed as it were Now, I've always thought that would be quite sore on the knees. Ow. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. You know, it's uh, it's easy to uh, it's easy to dismiss to dismiss Total Recall as um, as pretty much just a piece of over the top uh, brutalism. But if you throw aside uh, if you throw aside the the actually reasonably sort of dense plot and the the, the thematic content which which is there if you want to look for it. it the reason it works is because it's so over the top Paul Verhoeven if, if we forget about the showgirls and, and the hollow mans uh, out there Paul Verhoeven, Starship Troopers Paul Verhoeven of Robocop and Paul Verhoeven of 
Total Recall is as a director who who brings out through his own sheer enthusiasm the enthusiasm in everybody else that works with him. And that's one of the reasons why the film works is that you just get the impression that absolutely everybody involved from Verhoeven to his actors to the set designers to the effects guys, they all invested so much in it. Everybody, if you, if you want to use a poker analogy, everybody involved in this film has gone all in. And the, 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 winner, of, the winner of the hand is the viewer. We pick up the pot, no doubt whatsoever. There's so much. Yes, it's ridiculously violent. Yes, it's gory. Yes, it's completely over the top. These are all good things in this movie. It just works. It's absolutely awesome. Absolutely awesome. You just know that everybody involved in this got a chance to go out and and play and show what the, the Verhoeven just gave everybody a remit to just show them what they could do. Just go wild. And it absolutely works 100%. And that's why, even though now it's it's easy to spot the the joins and and this day of 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 digital effects work, it's it's easy to spot the the blue screen and the, the matte paintings and things like that. But the reason it remains so enjoyable still is that it's just so it's just such an enthusiastic film. More than most films, more than probably any film I've seen, this. Total Recall just goes hell for leather. There's no need, there's no need to witness Ronnie Cox's eyeballs popping out of his head, as they do here in a second, for any reason other than Paul Verhoeven felt like it, and it meant he could give Rob Bettine a chance to do something as cool as fuck with an animatronic. That's that's why it happens. It's not necessary to the plot. It's not how you would really meet your end in a, in a planet with with little atmosphere if you if you travelled from a, a safe atmosphere out into the the harsh the harsh reality of the the landscape outside. It just looks cool, and it makes your mum go. Ugh. That's why that's why Verhoeven did it. And a lot of that final shot there of, uh, of Ronnie Cox, where his eyes finally come out of his head, uh, hasn't. I don't think that's one of the shots, if I remember correctly, that was that was cut for the the R rating to to avoid the X certificate. But um, it is a shot which has been edited from most of the more conservative uh, territories for the video release and whatnot. It's it's one of the uh, it's one of the scenes that suffered, fortunately not here in the, the UK or, or in the States, but uh, I think for example the the more harshly of rated of the two versions available in Australia, if I remember correctly, and the German the original German video version, I think uh, as well, were, were, to give you an example, were two of the uh, the territories where that was that was cut.
Oh, that'll, that'll take more than an antihistamine to cure that. It is pretty easy to spot that these these aren't sort of real physical transformations taking place in the actors here. But at the same time, even by today's standards, could it actually be done all that much more convincingly by CG? Maybe slightly more convincingly, but testimony to uh, to Rob Boutin's uh, animatronics and, and physical makeup that there's maybe 16 years more of a difference in some of the other visual effects than there are in, in the sequence there. And a lot of the flying glass in these scenes, not the two shots there, but the two previous shots, a lot of the flying glass uh, being added in optically afterwards because it was too dangerous to have the... Uh, to have even sugar glass, I think... Uh, Exploding around the place with such uh, such fervor, certainly in that that great a quantity. Now, now they must have taken a couple of uh, tunes there, I think, because uh, they certainly helped them breathe more easily. Maybe it's all just a big advert for airwaves. The sort of the the average uh, <laughs> Scottish weather system there, giving way to to something a bit more bright. And everything's going to be happy ever after. And now we get to the ending where, if we remember the comment that was made earlier about by the Doctor inserted apparently into Quaid's uh, supposed dream about being lobotomized, we finish here with a fade to white and a cue in the music score which harks back to the dream sequence at the very start of the film that hints that actually this may be and impl- oh, this all oh, may be the, the implanted memory. That might be the way it's actually gone, that all this is actually just a memory that the Doctor inserted really wasn't there, and that his prophecy, as I said, a lot of what he says actually does happen towards the end of the film about the alien civilization and, and all that sort of nonsense. Um, he mentions about being lobotomized, and the fade to white at the end here is a deliberate attempt by Verhoeven to fog things up by suggesting that actually that may be the point at which Quaid is being lobotomized, casting a big net of ambiguity over absolutely everything, the bastard that he is.
here it comes the music cue. Here. And the fade. Now is it a happy ending or is it a lobotomy? You decide. And uh, and as the credits roll, I suppose I don't have that much more wisdom to impart on you. I've certainly learned uh, a lot about Mars today, although I didn't impart much of that knowledge to you and I have no intention of doing so now. If you want to find out more about Mars, the facts I've learned today while well, I've been doing a little bit of research for this, uh, this voiceover, you drop me an email. Indeed, if you've got anything that you want to... Uh, to ask, or if you've got suggestions for any films you would like to hear us commentate on, either myself or uh, the, uh, Scott or Drew, uh, please feel free. Any reason at all, we're always happy to get uh, to get mail from our uh, from our site visitors. You can email me uh, at disco. That's d i s k o at the oneliner dot com. You can email Scott at Tippy T I P P Y at the oneliner dot com, and you can email Drew at RhythmWiz that's R H Y T H M W I Z at the oneliner dot com, and uh, we will be more than happy to get back to you. Thank you very much for listening to uh, everything I've had to say. I've managed to keep relatively sober tonight, actually, despite having a couple of uh, Havana clubs while I was watching that there and talking to you. Um, but congratulations if you have actually managed to understand what I've said, because I am choked with the cold. And I'm sounding a bit nasal at the moment, and I doubt very much if listening back to this, even I'll be able to understand most of what I've said. But thank you for taking the time anyway. Um, a pleasure, as always, to, to hopefully have imparted some sort of information uh, that you may not have known about the film, and hopefully uh, I'll have shared some of my enthusiasm for the film with you. And with any luck, if you haven't watched the film in a while, maybe it's uh, rekindled your enthusiasm for what is a, a hugely superficial action movie on one level, uh, an incredibly brutal action movie on one level of the kind that, frankly, we just don't see anymore. In this age of 12A action movies, will we ever see anything so mainstream yet so violent again? Um, and yet on another level, it's a film which, despite being initially the the, the most uh, shallow of uh, endeavours, actually gives way to uh, some, some pretty big themes, and not in the kind of way that for example, maybe the fifth element had a big theme, but it was it was handled in a very ham-fisted manner. Um, Total Recall is most definitely a film which um, learned people like to dismiss, have great difficulty admitting that it does actually have thematic content. And just because it's an Arnie film doesn't mean just because it's uber violent doesn't mean to say that there's nothing in worth of worth in there. It is actually a reasonably deep film. It's just that most of us, myself included, choose to uh, to watch it for the gore fest that it is. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Thank you again for uh, for taking the time to download this and listen. And hopefully, I'll get to speak to you guys again sometime soon. Drop us an email. And in the meantime, take care.